See how much easier this is when we get so many months into it, or well, over a year into it. You should start retaining this stuff. So who's he writing the gospel to? Theophilus. That's right. And who is Theophilus? Oh, no idea. Um, hmm? Who else is he writing to? Gentiles, Greeks, that's right. Uh, so, Theophilus, we don't know who he is for sure, but what do we know? He's most excellent. That's right. So he's a high-ranking official, likely, because that's how uh, being, uh, that's how Luke refers to him as most excellent. So he's a high-ranking government official, maybe wealthy, something like that. Um, so what's the purpose of writing the Gospel of Luke? Why did Luke write it? You always get stumped on this one. That's right. So Theophilus would know the things that he had been taught were true and to give an account of Jesus' ministry on earth. So those are the two reasons the book was written. All right, good stuff. Questions? Nope. All right, so last week, yes? Oh. He does if he's got a question. What's your question? I don't know why the sky is blue. All right, so last week Jesus took uh, the transfiguration. He took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to pray. And and while they were there, uh, Jesus' clothes, what happened? His clothes and his face lit up this brilliant light. And uh, and Moses and Elijah appeared. So um, the, the, the Father spoke to them. Uh, while he was there, he said, Luke uh, 9:35, verse 35. He said, "This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him." All right. So now, after having this mountaintop experience, Jesus, uh, Peter, and James, and John—they all coming back down off the mountain, right back into the thick of ministry. That's what we're seeing. They come down, and the first thing—what the, what's the first thing Jesus is confronted with? A crowd of people. He's confronted with a crowd of people, some of them which are his own disciples, the other nine that he didn't take with him. So we're going to read the text. Don't let the uh, don't let it uh, don't let the the uh, words that Jesus spoke here don't let them surprise you uh, because they're full of emotion. He's full of emotion at this point, but he has a purpose that that he's, that he's wanting to point the people to an essential essential element of God's work. All right, so y'all go ahead and stand. And we'll uh, we'll read um, we'll read starting in verse 37. Starting in verse 37, it says, "And it came about on the next day, when they had gone, when they had come down from the mountain, a great multitude met him. And behold, a man from the multitude shouted out, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and it mauls him scarcely, and it mauls him, it scarcely leaves him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered, saying, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon dashed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. 
But while everyone was marveled, was marveling at that, at, at, the, at that what he was doing, he said to his disciples, "Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the into the hands of men." But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the statement. So let's pray. Lord, I love you. And Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. God, I just uh, I pray that uh, the words that I speak today, I pray they bring you glory. I, let, I pray that um, the words that are heard today be powered by the Holy Spirit to open eyes and hearts, maybe even for the first time today. Lord, we ask this in the name that stands above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. So, let me start giving you an illustration. Um, there was a, there's a story of this 33-year-old guy several years ago. I, you may have heard the story. But this guy, as long as he could remember, he wanted to fly. He wanted to fly. He was a truck driver, but he, he said he didn't have the time or the money to go to pilot school to become a pilot. And so he spent a lot of time sitting in his backyard thinking about flying. And so he sat in this old aluminum lawn chair. And while he was sitting there one day, he came up with this idea. So what he did is he took 45 helium-filled weather balloons. He tied them to that old lawn chair. He put a CB radio on his lap. And he grabbed some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and taped them to his leg. <laughs> and he took a BB gun to pop the balloons when he was ready to come down. So, so what do you think happened? He took off and he only expected to go a couple hundred feet above his neighborhood. He went 11,000 feet. And he went right into the airspace of LAX. So when he finally got down, the police asked him what in the world he was thinking. What in the world were you thinking? And he, his answer was, I just wanted to see what it looked like from up here. He wanted to see what it looked like from up there. So why do people want to look at things from above? They're crazy. But people do want to look at things from above. They want to look down on the world. Why? Why do they think like that? See, when you're on a mountaintop, you see how big the world is. When you're on a mountaintop, you see how big the world is, and it makes you yourself feel smaller. It does. Scripture, uh, even, scripture points to a lot of things that happen on mountains. That's where Moses, that's where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Moriah. He, um, or I'm sorry, Mount Sinai. On Mount Moriah, God gave a ram for Abraham. That's what happened on Mount uh, Moriah. But on Mount Sinai, he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Elijah held his, favorite, his, his contest on Mount uh, Carmel. And last week, we studied the Transfiguration, which was, again, it was a mountaintop, exp a mountaintop experience for the three disciples. And it was such an experience that, that Peter wanted to build three shrines and stay up there and worship forever. So all of us in this room, I can pretty much bet that everybody in this room that's a believer have had a mountaintop experience in your life, in your walk. You have. And uh, whether you've been to a youth camp uh, or, or some kind of retreat somewhere, or you've gone out of the country on a mission trip, you, you see in those things, you see the glory of God. 
You see them firsthand. You see the glory of God at work. And you don't want to come back down from that mountaintop. You don't. But what happens when you come back to the real world? Everybody else is not on that mountaintop. And all their problems start to take you over. Really and truly, they start to take you over. And they, and they, they can, uh, I don't know the best word to say, they can, they can, they can, they can wear you down. They can, they can wear you down. And so you eventually leave your mountain and what you leave it for is the valley. You go back down into the valley with Jesus. So um, as we look at today what happened in the valley, when Jesus left the mountaintop and they go down in the valley, uh, what happened with Jesus 2,000 years ago, there's some important lessons we can take from this and points of application. So the first thing, here's your first point, and they're not going to be on the screen, so I'll, I'll talk you through them. Uh, the first point is, uh, the first thing we see is a desperate dad. A desperate dad. He said, I begged your disciples to cast it out. I begged your disciples to cast it out. So, Matthew, put that next slide up. I don't know if any of you have ever seen this painting, and if you can even see it real good now. But this is a painting of the, of the Transfiguration. All right, and He gets all the elements. A guy named Raphael, uh, it was the last thing he painted before he died in 1517, and he painted it on his 37th birthday. And this tells the story of the Transfiguration on, 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 one, uh, on one canvas. So you see up above, at the top, Moses and Elijah, Jesus. You see the disciples, the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, they're all covering their faces, covering their eyes because of the glory of God. Um, but, uh, and then the next level, down at the bottom, he painted what was happening down in the valley. See the other nine disciples right there on the bottom, they're pointing to the, to the, to the tortured boy. If you can see him, his father's holding him, his mother's right next to him. He's all twisted and convoluted. Uh, but the, the disciples are there, they're pointing to him. Uh, like I said, the boy's being restrained by his father. He has this crazy expression on his face. And if you can see the picture, you can't from up there. But he, there's foam. He painted foam coming out of his mouth. And so there's a, there's a lot of desperation and frustration in that picture. Um, there's a lot of desperation and frustration. Uh, the, the father is desperate for somebody to help his son. And he's disappointed uh, and, and he's disappointed because he's frustrated. You know, the, the disciples have failed. They haven't been able to heal his son. So really, when I look at this picture, it's a pretty good job of, of painting what happened and portraying what happened in this text. Um, and so this is first point of application I want, I want you to get uh, out of this point of a desperate dad is that we're surrounded we are surrounded by, by, by crowds of hurting people who need our help. We're surrounded by crowds of hurting people who need our help. Now, when we're on the mountaintop, it's, it's good. Is it not? It's sweet. It's really good. We commune with Jesus. But when you come back down into the valley, you're literally ambushed by people with needs. You are. And so that's why we... Crossway Baptist Church should always be a church built in the valley. We should be built in the valley and not on the mountain. Amen? Amen. We should. There's actually um, the actual mountain that this happened. There's actually a church built 
on the top of that mountain today. You can go visit it. You can actually go visit it. Tourists go all the time. And what you see when you go is a bunch of monks in this church. And what they do is they ask the tourists to be quiet. They quietly ask them to be quiet. And at the foot of the mountain, there are literally tens of thousands of people who've never been inside that church. Never. And there's, it's, 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 I guess let me explain what I said, and I know y'all get what I said, but the reason we should strive to be a church built in the valley and not on the mountain is because Jesus spent most of his time in the valley and not on the mountain. So I think, not just I think, you know, the Bible tells us we should too, right? It's a good thing for us to come here every week and praise and gather and worship Jesus. It's a great thing. Every Sunday can be a mountaintop experience for us, but there's six other days of the week. There's six other, God sends us out into the valley. He sends us out into our homes, our jobs, our, you know, our businesses, our schools. He sends us out and we come across hurting people that desperately need Jesus. Desperately. So what we need to do is love them and accept them and, 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 and tell them about the offer of Jesus, the offer of Christ. Introduce them to Christ. Um, <clears throat> a few years ago, I was... I was in this conversation, and I'm not going to give names, but y'all can pretty well <coughs> decipher for yourself. It wasn't at Crossway; it was at a different church. And so I was in this. I was involved in this conversation with this guy who had approached me and two other people who also were a part of this church. And I, you know, basically, I just I didn't say anything. I sat back and I witnessed the conversation take place. But he was complaining about some of the people who had been visiting the church. He said they were uh, there were people coming to the church and they weren't as respectable or as well dressed as he was. And it bothered him. It bothered him. And I'm, I'm gonna give you this quote because I've never forgotten this. And I probably never will. This is these are his exact words. I don't want those kind of people coming to my church. What, and, and so one of the guys, one of the pastors who was involved in that conversation, he said, what kind of people are you talking about? And uh, he said, what kind of people are you talking about? He said, you know, those messed up people. We don't want them bringing their problems into this church. I'm serious. I'm serious. So conversation went kind of downhill. It did. There was no talking to him because, the, you know, the pastor said, well, first of all, it's not your church. First of all, it's not your church, and, and those are exactly the kind of people that Jesus welcomed and helped. Amen. And so, you know, as much as this guy obviously didn't want to admit, uh, he was one of those people too. Was he not? Yeah. He didn't stay very long. He, he didn't go to that church anymore. So, anyway, my stance, you know, on that is, is you know, we don't have that issue here. I've never seen that issue here. I've never seen no one, anybody not being welcomed by this body. Because at Crossway, we understand that uh, it's his church. It's not our church. And wearing a suit and tie doesn't cleanse your heart at all. So valley people are always welcome here. They are. Sometimes, a lot of times, many of us are in the valley ourselves. We are. We have our own issues that we're struggling with. Yeah. 
and there's there's another truth about this mountaintop before I move on to the next point that, that I don't want you to miss. A lot of times we have ourselves these valley experiences, pretty rough valley experiences, after we've had a mountaintop experience, immediately after. The very next day here, when Jesus and the disciples come off the mountain, they're right into the valley. They have this massively glorious mountaintop experience, and, and then uh, they were confronted with a, a pretty rough demon. So... Uh, a lot of times after we have mountaintop experiences, we think things are going to be smooth for a while, and then boom, it hits us. All hell breaks loose in our lives. Does it not? Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There's, it's, it's a pretty standard pattern. It is. It happens pretty regularly, so just don't be surprised. I gave you those examples of Moses and Elijah. When Moses came down off the mountain, what did he find? They found the children of Israel doing what? They were worshiping false false idols. They were worshiping the golden calf. He got so mad he broke the tablets. He was. He's fired up. And then uh, Elijah, after hit, huh? Yeah. <laughs> after Elijah came back down, um, and we're you know, off of uh, of Mount Carmel, where God sent down the fire from heaven, he he ran into the desert. Y'all remember that? He ran into the desert because Jezebel threatened to behead him. And so he was in this valley himself, valley of depression. He was sitting under a tree begging God to let him to die. Let him die. And what about Jesus? His very own life is a picture of that. Our text today, he comes off the valley, but then what happens when he when when he was when he was baptized? He went out into the valley of the wilderness. For 40 days. So, I just want you to know, I mean, be ready. Mountaintop experiences, we we crave them. We want to be there. We want to be on that high all the time. But life is lived in the valley. On the mountaintop is where we prepare. But life is lived in the valley. So, whenever God opens these, these, these windows that blesses our lives... I guarantee you, you can be certain that the devil's going to come swooping in. Not soon, not not long after. So be ready for the valley. It's full of hurting people. All right, so that was the desperate dad. Now let's look at the next point, the defective disciples. Defective disciples. Text says, because they could not. Because they could not. So this dad, this desperate dad, was more or less complaining to Jesus and begging Jesus for Jesus's help, and, uh, and and he says, Jesus, your disciples tried to help, but they could not. Y'all remember earlier? I believe it was in this chapter. It may have been, I believe it was at the first of this chapter. But Jesus sent the disciples out. He gave them power and authority over the demons. And I can just imagine. When they're here, while Jesus and James and John and Peter are up on the mountaintop and they're trying to cast this demon out, one by one they're going up and one by one they're failing. And this demon's not going anywhere. His dad was hopeful. He brought him. He brought his son, hopeful that the disciples, because he had heard what they had done when they went out on their journey, they were casting out demons just like this Jesus. And he brought his son here and uh, every one of them, one by one, failed to cast the demon out. That's a pretty strong indictment against those disciples and Jesus came down again and understand this when he came down and he says in the text he called them an unbelieving and perverse generation 
He was talking about the disciples just as much as he was the crowd. So here's the point of application. Powerless disciples, powerless disciples have nothing to offer a hurting world. Powerless disciples have nothing to offer a hurting world. So think about this. And how often does this happen today? There's tons of hurting people that come into churches every week. And they're looking to the church to give them help. And they leave disappointed. Do they not? It happens every week. They look to the church for help and they wind up leaving. How many times has a, has a, has a couple on the verge of divorce come to the church looking for help and they leave disappointed? They leave disappointed. They, they say, I brought my sick marriage to the church for healing, but they could not. Or how many times is a person have, struggling with whatever, emotional, physical abuse, they come to the church and they leave and walk away unhelped. They say, I brought my, my, brought my battered heart to the church or my battered body to the church for help, and they could not. They could not. Those words should echo in our minds. They could not. Because I tell you, the surveys, y'all know how Buffy likes statistics, so he's, that's kind of rubbed off on me. Surveys have uh, shown that, that uh, there's millions of Americans who claim to believe in Jesus and attend church, or, or they don't attend church. They claim to believe in Jesus, but they don't attend church because the church does not meet their needs. That's one of our main jobs. That's one of our main jobs. I think we better sit up and pay attention to that. We have to make sure that we're a church that not only accepts hurting people, but are willing to help hurting people. We're not only welcome them in with, welcome them in with, with open arms, but we're willing to do something about why they're broken. And we can't do it in our own strength. We can only, and we can't do it with programs. We can't do it with with uh, practices, we can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've got to realize that Jesus, only Jesus, can help somebody who's in need. And so we have to realize that the one resource that we have is not some secular organization. We don't need to be sending them, well, I understand your, uh, your marriage is going through problems, so let me send you to this secular counselor. Let me send you to this secular club who can help you. We don't need to do that. The power of Jesus Christ is in the walls, not just in the walls, but within the church. And we need to tap into that resource to help hurting people. It's our responsibility. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, you know, I'll just be honest when I say it. A church is is without the anointing of the Holy Spirit, without the filling of the Holy Spirit, is a powerless and pathetic institution. And a Christian without the filling of the Holy Spirit is a powerless and pathetic contradiction. Let that sink in. We must always, every single day, seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-time filling. It's not. There's not a one-time filling. It's an everyday feeling and filling and asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about this. If God suddenly removed the Holy Spirit from the world, would your life be any different? 
If he removed the Holy Spirit from this world, would your life change one bit? If not, we got a problem. We got a problem. Ephesians 5.18, Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is a command. And that's a present tense command. It means continually being on field, be filled, be filled, be filled, be filled, be filled. But it's a command, not a suggestion. And since it's a command, not being filled daily with the Holy Spirit's a sin. Charles Finney said that he said Christians are as guilty for not being filled with the Holy Spirit as sinners are for not repenting. That's an indictment. He said, really, they're even more so before they have for they have more light. So they're much more guilty. So when when are disciples of Jesus, when are the when is the church defective? When is it defective when there's no filling of the Holy Spirit? So we've seen the desperate dad, the defective disciples. Now, next point is a determined demon, a determined demon. The text says, when the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground. So this is physical suffering, physical suffering. And physical suffering can be caused by by demonic possession, demonic control. Baptists, we don't talk a lot about demon possession. But let me tell you, it's real. It is absolutely 100% positively real. It is. A lot of times in the New Testament, Jesus cast out demons and healed the sick. <clears throat> but this boy's suffering was, was demon-induced. The, the mean spirit caused him to have these violent convulsions. He was screaming and foaming at the mouth. And In Matthew's account, he said the, the demon made the boy fall into the fire and into the water. So this wasn't just a normal demon that, that these disciples had seen or dealt with. This was... This was a demon that was kind of different. And biblically speaking, dem- demons are are what? Fallen angels. Hmm? Fallen angels. Yeah, yeah, but but they're 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 invisible evil spirits. Right? They're invisible evil spirits. They're determined their only job is to cause misery and to cause pain. But what happens in our world today, our world today, we write off demonic activity. We, we, we write it off as, as uh, stuff that was imagined by pre-scientific people. That's what, that's what they'll tell you today. Our, the modern world will say that demon activity is just some old magic that, was before, that, that people wrote about before science. But there was this one doctor. He said, um, he, he, what, this is what he said. He said um, he compared today's attitude to those in London in 1665 when the plague hit. The plague hit London in 1665, and they said the attitude today is the same as it was then. Literally thousands of people were dying mysteriously. Today, we know it was a virus that caused it, a virus of germs that was the, you know, that was eventually called the plague, but it was invisible to the naked eye. You couldn't see it. So if you could go back 400, this is what he said, if you can go back 400 years and tell the physicians that invisible germs caused the plague, they would have laughed at you. They would have laughed at you. The doctors would have ignored what you were saying and continued to practice uh, their practice of bleeding victims and burning foul-smelling potions to cure people. That's what they did. He says, modern man has adopted the same attitude about demons. 
We tell them that the world is in, is in the grip of Satan, that he has countless hosts of invisible demons to aid him in his design against mankind. And people look at us with pity and hatred. They say that we should peddle our theory to the fiction section of the bookstore. But it's true. It's all true. Every bit of it is true. Our world has been invade, invaded by a virus. But it's even more deadly than the plague. And it attacks the soul rather than the body. Amen. This, um, but you know, like I said, this this war, this spirit world that we can't see, angelic and demonic spirits are invisible to our eye. We can't see it, but there's activity all around us, all around us. If we could see the spirit world, we would cower in a corner and never leave, and never walk in the midst of it. That's how. That's how crazy it is but we can't see it we don't have the ability to see it the devil and his demons don't want you to be aware of them they don't want you to be aware of what they're doing how many of you've read um screw tape letters c.s lewis yeah that's uh, i would recommend all of you read it it's it's a it's a it's a really good book and it, and it has a lot of letters uh that uh, the head demon screw tape writes to his nephew uh wormwood he writes these letters, and what he does is he gives him directions on how to torment, how to best torment his victims. In one of the letters, he says, the fact that demons are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Here's the point. Here's the point of application. The devil and his demons try to prevent you from drawing near to Jesus. The devil and his demons try to prevent you from drawing near to Jesus. See, the exact second that boy was brought to Jesus, what happened? Jesus says, bring him here, bring him to me. And as they were bringing him to Jesus, he immediately began convulsing. The, the demon caused a convulsion and threw him to the ground. That wasn't a coincidence. That wasn't a coincidence. The main purpose of Satan is preventing you from drawing near to Jesus. Spurgeon said that as, as, soon, as, the ever, as soon as ever the devil perceived that Christ was near, he began to rend and he, tear his poor victim like a bad tenant whose lease is out. He hates the landlord, and so he does all the damage he can before he's evicted. A lot of times, and y'all think about this in your own personal, not just your personal lives, but, but you know, what you've seen in the lives of other people. Well, a lot of times when a man's converted, there's, there's, there, they, they, they get worse just before the, the, the conversion. Their life gets worse just before the conversion. There's some unusual display of wickedness. And uh, I read this book a while back, and it kind of stuck with me. But there was a guy, the guy that wrote the book, he was telling of a story of a church that uh, he was in prior. And uh, he was talking about a man that he led, he, he led to the Lord. He said the guy got fired up. He got fired up. He uh, um, started reading his Bible every day. And about a week or so later, the guy comes back to him and said, Preacher, I found out what Satan's job is. It's in the book of Job. He said, I found that Satan's job is to keep me miserable so that I'll curse God. And that's the truth. That's the truth. Job number one for Satan is to keep us lost. 
That's his first number one job is to keep us lost. You pay attention. Some of you are going to get mad at me now. Y'all pay attention during the invitation. You just watch during the invitation. I, I look at this every week. I watch this every week. When the invitation is given, some of you are going to be packing up your stuff, getting ready to go, waiting to get hit that door. You'll be whispering to somebody sitting next to you. Some, some even sneak out during that time. Look, I, I'm not slapping anybody. I ain't slapping your hand for doing that. I just want you to understand that this moment, that moment of the invitation is a moment of spiritual warfare. It is a moment of spiritual warfare and Satan will use anything and everything he can to distract you or other people in this building from hearing what's being said. And so, and it, because his desire is to keep us lost. That's his main desire. And look, even if you get through that, even if you get through that and you come to Christ, Satan doesn't give up there. He doesn't give up there. He just puts your name in a new file and has a different strategy. So you may have come to Christ. You may have been saved, but he's going to try to prevent you from developing intimacy and a, and a, and a stronger, deeper relationship with Jesus. All right. So we've seen the desperate dad, defective disciples, the determined demon now. The divine deliverer. The divine deliverer. He says, bring him to me. So let's focus on Jesus for a minute. Focus on Jesus. When we read this whole text, and Jesus says, bring him to me. Can you imagine Jesus spreading his arms open as he gives the invitation? He says, bring him to me. Come as you are. And Luke says, Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. I bet you at this point, when this happened, the whole crowd was quiet. It says in verse 33, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. So here's your, here's your first point, your first application point. Spiritual burdens are lifted by Jesus. Spiritual burdens are lifted by Jesus. So any of you come in here with any burdens today? Did you bring any with you in the door? Sick child, sick marriage, sick heart, sick checkbook? That's what I brought with me. It's in a coma. But Jesus says, he says, bring your problems to me. He says, bring them to me. He sees your need. He does, and he cares. He says, cast his care, all your cares on him because he cares for us. Somebody somebody sent me a joke this week. He said there was this group of kids in a Catholic school lunchroom, and uh, there were apples on the table in this Catholic school lunchroom. And it says, only, only take one apple. God is watching. On the next table, there was chocolate chip cookies. But there was no sign until a little boy wrote a sign that says, uh, take all the cookies you want because God's watching the apples. <laughs> now, thank God he can watch the apples and the cookies at the same time. Right? He can watch them both at the same time, at the same moment. He watches over you and me and everybody else at the same exact time in this world. He knows our pain. He knows our pain, which that brings us to the second point of application. Um Spiritual battles are won in prayer. Amen. Spiritual battles are won in prayer. 
And I don't want us to leave here this morning without realizing this lesson. The disciples were un- the disciples were unable to cast out this demon. They were unable to cast it out. If we read Mark's account of this, he gives us a little more insight that we don't get in Luke's account. Uh, Mark 9, write that down. Mark 9, verses 28 and 29. I'll read them to you. When he came into the house, his, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this cannot come out by anything but prayer. There's different kinds of demons, just like there's different ranks of angels. And this was a determined demon, a tough demon. So what was Jesus doing on the mountaintop? Praying. He was praying. Why? Because he knew there was a spiritual battle that he would face in the valley. And he won, the, he won this battle not by anything he did in the valley. He won the battle when he was on the mountaintop in prayer. And I'm con- totally convinced the main reason that we as Christians are defeated and powerless a lot of times is because we don't practice the discipline of prayer near enough. We fail. When you're facing issues or battles that are bigger than you can handle, and I'm I, look, I'm guilty as anybody, but when we're facing those problems and those battles, it is imperative to spend time in prayer. Sometimes we face issues so tough that only prayer can work. It's only prayer that will fix it. When you've been on the mountaintop praying, you're ready to face anything, anything that happens in the valley. Anything. So I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to give you an illustration. <clears throat> but do you all remember Payne Stewart? He was a golfer. He died in 99. October of 99, his jet crashed into the ground going 600 miles an hour. Investigators said that uh, that uh, everybody on board the jet died of asphyxiation well before the crash happened. But the impact was so massive that they did not uh, recover any bodies. It was such a massive impact. Not long before the crash, though, and I didn't know this, but not long before the crash, Payne Stewart had been on a mountaintop. He had just come to know the Lord. He had just come to know the Lord and it changed his life. And so it was so drastically changed, uh, just like any person that's that's just converted, uh, their life changes drastically. And so one of the things that he started doing was started wearing a bracelet, a WWJD bracelet. That was back when all that stuff was popular. So he started wearing that bracelet. Matter of fact, he had the bracelet on when he won the U.S. Open that year. And so when his wife came to the crash scene, his wife's name was Tracy, she was able to retrieve um, his wedding ring. She found his wedding ring. She found that bracelet. And she found a a devotional book, the daily devotional book that he read every day. When she looked at the book, when she looked at it, she discovered in the corner of the page, uh, there was a corner on a page that was turned in, and it was on that day's devotion. So he had been reading that on the plane. Um... The scripture in that devotion was Acts 26:18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among, the, among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. He underlined that. And he underlined the prayer that went along with it in the book. It says, Grant that I may 
be used to open the eyes of others and turn them from darkness to light so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Jesus. That could have been the last prayer that guy ever prayed before the crash. But listen, his wife said that, uh, that after the funeral's over, she had over a thousand letters from people telling her that they had come to Christ because of his testimony and death. She, says, she said it was if God was saying, even in the midst of tragedy, I will have a witness. Listen, <clears throat> on the mountaintop, there's a Savior. And he's glowing with the glory of God. But in the valley, there are messed up people who cry out for help. <clears throat> on the mountaintop is worship, is holy worship. But down in the valley, it's hard work. On the mountaintop, there's strength. But in the valley, we find frustration. We find failure. And on the mountaintop, there's delight in Jesus. But in the valley, there are demons, there's disease, there's death. Don't be afraid. We cannot, cannot be afraid. In Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So what I pray this morning is I pray that we that, that we always be people be a people who reach up and experience the glory of God in worship. I pray that we're a people who always reach up and experience the glory of God in worship, but more than that, I pray that we be a church built in the valley that reaches out to hurting people, sharing the good news that this desperate dad in this in, in this encounter discovered. Same thing that Payne Stewart discovered, his wife discovered. The good news that the world is dying. They're dying to hear it. Even though your life's jacked up and messed up, Jesus opens his arms and he says, bring your burdens, your pain, and your problems to me. And as the body of Christ, we have to open our arms and say, Jesus loves you, cares for you, and so do we. So do we. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, I cannot express enough how much we love you. We love you. And we love you in your invitation to follow you. God, I pray for a deeper understanding of faith. Sometimes we think we know what faith is, but really and truly we don't understand what faith is. God, I ask you now to help our faith grow. Your word says you give us a measure of faith, but Lord, it's our job to to get in your word and grow our faith. I pray that we're able to do that. God, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit run amok in this place. That God, if there are any amongst us who do not know your son Jesus, Lord, I pray today be the day of salvation. I ask you this in the most powerful, the most beautiful name that stands above every name, the only name under heaven by which man must be saved, the name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to tell you something now that's the most important thing you're going to hear today. More important than anything I've told you so far, 
It's the most important thing you'll hear at any point in your life. And that is God is holy. God is perfect. And He requires holiness and perfection from us. Raise your hand if you're perfect. I stand corrected. <laughs> G, uh, Dan and Dan and Sadie and I have been talking about holiness on Wednesday nights. And in short, holiness is is the inability to sin. It means moral perfection. It means that it's nothing it's nothing we can possess. Only God alone possesses holiness. It's an attribute of God's nature, his perfect nature. And so since there's nobody greater than God and God is the greatest good, God's the standard of what is good. Right? Does that make sense? And so the law, the law that God gave, it's a reflection of his character. See, the reason that it's wrong to lie, to cheat, to steal, and, and, and whatever is because God can't do them. God cannot sin. He cannot break his own law. His, he cannot break his holiness. He's incapable of doing any of it, sinning in any way. So what the law becomes is a standard of righteousness. It's a standard of righteousness. We're incapable of keeping the law because we are not what? Holy. We are not holy. We're sinners. And we've broken God's law. We've sinned against him. And there is no sin. That's what this book tells you. There is no sin that doesn't have punishment. All sin will be punished. The punishment for breaking God's law is what? Death. And what is death? Eternal separation. So you will, what you choose in this life is what God will give you in eternity. So if you choose to not, if you, if you don't choose God in this life, then he's going to let you live with that choice in eternity. You can't choose him in eternity. That's tough. That's tough. But there's good news. See, there can't be good news without bad news, and that's the bad news. But there is good news, and that's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's the good news that that, that this judgment of God, this eternal separation in the place of hell, this judgment of God was placed upon a person. It was placed upon God himself. For your sake, for my sake. See, that that breaking of God's law, that judgment can be removed in the person of Jesus. And it's done because Jesus, who is God the Son, God the Son in the flesh, he perfectly followed that law. That law that we can't follow, he perfectly followed it. And so then he was able, because he perfectly followed followed it, to offer a sacrifice to God the Father. That sacrifice pleased God's wrath. Jesus took on the wrath of God, and it pleased God, as Isaiah says, to crush his son. Because the one who knew no sin became sin. So he died on the cross, and three days later physically rose from the dead, 
And that was proof that his words, his deeds, everything that he said, everything that he taught, every miracle that he that he that he performed were true. Everything was true. And so if any of us, any of us wants to escape that judgment, we got to receive that sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. We have to receive that. And how's that done? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. So repent of your sin. Trust by faith that Jesus is exactly who God says he is. And the word of God says what? You will be made new. Not patched up. Not cleaned up. But you will be made new. So if God's stirring in you this morning, he could be drawing you to himself. Don't 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 reject him. Don't turn from him. Scripture says when you call upon the name of the Lord, what? You you will be saved. And that is true. The Bible says it. So it's got to be true. Right. So as we have this time of invitation, I'll just say that um, I said it before. Today's the day of salvation. Days, but not tomorrow. You're not promised another minute. You're not promised another second. Today is the day of salvation, so receive Christ today. Receive a new heart, a new life, a new master, a new purpose. We're going to stand and sing. We're going to stand and sing now. And I'll just say, as we do, if God is stirring in you in any way this morning, let's have a talk. Let's have a conversation. Don't walk out of here today without having a conversation, whether it's about salvation, whether it's about membership or baptism, whatever, however the Holy Spirit's leading you, let's have a conversation this morning. That's all, Stan. Stan, turn to page 307.